Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, good morning to you all. So excited to be here. This is pretty low, praise God. Okay, we'll just deal with this. I want to give a quick announcement before we get started. Um, In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus makes this incredible call. He says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, or the laborers are few. When he says this, really he's imagining two groups of people. The first is the harvest. The harvests are people who want to know God personally, intimately. They want to be a part of the kingdom. But then there are laborers, and that is God's people. But he's saying that God's people aren't always mobilized to be a part of the harvest. In other words, he says, there's a group of people over here waiting for a group of people over here. And he doesn't say pray for the people over here, the harvest. He says pray for the laborers. He says, make sure you pray that laborers go out and tell people about Jesus that they would be seeing opportunity. What that means for us is that we need to realize that one of the greatest challenges we have in terms of seeing people know Jesus is God's people being distracted by other things, by being at work, by being overwhelmed by things that we have, but not being in the harvest, not being able to have connections, opportunities, having conversations about Jesus. So it's with that in mind that as we get towards Easter, we want to put forth a challenge to us all. We call it the harvest challenge. The harvest challenge would be this. We first want you to pray to be a laborer in God's harvest. When we say pray, we're saying ask God to put you on the mission field. See opportunities. See people at your work, people that you know, that you would begin to pray for opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. But secondly, we want you to use your platforms. So we want you to post about not just your faith, but about your church. Right now, people are isolated. They've been dealing with this pandemic. They've been alone. They've not really had the connections that they long for. And we wanna not only post that you have a relationship with Jesus, but that you have a community that you are a part of that knows Christ. In other words, post your church online, at Bridge Church, Instagram or Facebook, but you are putting that out there. Now, we are openly saying we want the world to know that there is a community that will love them, and you want to be open about that with the world. Thirdly, and lastly, invite someone to our Easter service. We have three opportunities for them to be able to come to. We want you to be bold with that. Now, I really want to encourage you that God has saved you to use you, amen? And there are people around you that are suffering by themselves, and we want to place people in community. So listen, inviting someone is easy as one, two, three. One church, two locations, three services, amen? Say it with me. One church, 
Two locations. Three services. That's who we're moving towards on this Easter. Those are the opportunities. And we pray that you would step into those opportunities, not as a marketing ploy. And if it is a marketing ploy, we're marketing Jesus. And we want people openly to see Jesus. Friends, be overtly Christian. Amen. Let the world know whose you are. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that even now you would lay forth this challenge to our people and that we would be able to see the harvest. And just as Jesus saw the harvest, he saw the opportunity. He saw people were like sheep without a shepherd. We ask now, God, that you would help us to see what you see. You would help us to engage people, to love people, to serve people. And now unto you, Lord, we ask for a blessing over this time. We ask that we would hear from you, know you more, and that your anointing would touch this place. We ask all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen? Amen. Well, listen, um, one of the things that happens to me as a pastor is that I get a lot of questions, particularly when I come out as a pastor, you know, and uh, we're all like at a hibachi grill and they're like, what do you do? And I'm, like, I'm a pastor like, oh, and then I, then people tell me they were altar boy when they were 10 and all this other stuff that happens. But one of the things that happens all the time is people ask me questions. And the question that I get probably the most is, can I? What can I do? Pastor, uh, gambling just got legalized. I mean, how much? You know what I'm saying? I mean, football is, you know what I'm saying? The season's coming around. I mean, how, how much, how little, how, what can I do? Pastor, I'm just saying, we got legalized, and I just need to talk to you about it because I just need to talk about how much, how little. I mean, how much can I endure in this space, you know? Pastor, who, who can I have sex with? How much can I have sex? Where, where can I have sex? Sex and sex and sex. Pastor, what, what can I do? Who can I do it with? I mean, I mean, all these questions that I get, and they're always questions about our freedoms. And one of the things that I try to do as a pastor is I try to shift the focus. You see, it's our natural disposition when we come into a relationship with God to see our relationship in more of a law-based relationship. So we think right, wrong, can, can't. And so it is natural to ask that question, and I get it. But I want to shift the focus. You see, when we come into a relationship with God, our heart changes. Our desires change. And that leads to our behaviors changing. And so we want to begin to please God with all that we do. The question isn't, can I or can't I? The question really is, does it glorify God? And, and really, everything we do now functions like a magnifying glass. So you take that weed and you say, does that magnify the Lord? You take sex, sexual partners, and you say, does that magnify the Lord? You take your relationships, you say, does it glorify God? And now we're looking not through the lens of me, but through the lens of him. And we ask, is he pleased with me and what I do? We, we understand that our hearts function like consumers. We want more. And we do that with grace. We want more grace. And we'll take as much grace as we can. That's what our heart will do. So when you look in the first five chapters of the book of Romans, what's been happening is, 
Paul the Apostle has been trying to explain to this community that your works cannot save you. And he's been trying to explain to the uh, Jews at Rome that the law cannot save you, the Mosaic law cannot save you, circumcision cannot save you. He's been explaining to those outside of the church that there's nothing you can do, no standard that you can operate by that will save you. He's been pounding home, only grace saves, only grace saves, grace saves. And that should cause a celebration. But Paul knows our hearts because not only will it cause a celebration, yes, I am saved by grace, but it will cause consumerism. The conversation that we have in our hearts is, so Jesus, you're, you're telling me that you're going to pay for it all. And Jesus says, yes. You're telling me that you'll pay for all my past sins. Jesus says, yes. You're telling me that you'll pay for the sin that I'll commit today. Jesus says, yes. You're telling me that I might sin in the future, and whatever I do, you will pay for. Jesus says, yes. And us, and our hearts, we can't help ourselves. So you're saying you'll pay for it all, huh? Hmm. Hmm. See what I can get into. So this is all on your card. You're going to pay for all this? Okay. Okay, all right. I want to order some bad decisions. I want to get into some of that. What's, can I get some of that uh, doing what I know I should have no business doing? Yeah, give me some of that. Give me some go some places I know I had no business going. And then can I get, can you, can I get some act of fool? Give me some act of fool. <laughs> Throw that in there. Huh? Oh, he's going to pay for it. Oh, yeah, Jesus is going to pay. You're going to pay for this, right? You're going to pay for all of this. You see, we can't help it. And so understand, even though we know God is good, and he's Abba Father. Our hearts treat him like sugar daddy. See? And so we can't help ourselves. We are consumers of grace. And what quietly we know that we use grace as a license. And Paul is going to fight to make sure that we never presume that grace is a license to sin but rather our hearts should be changing. Amen? Amen. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. This entire passage is a part of a new stage happening in this book where chapters 6 through 8 are talking about the practical outcomes of some of the doctrine that he's been talking about. So he says in Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, again, will we use grace as a motivating factor to sin? Put in theological terms, can justification truly exist apart from sanctification if you've, been, if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Can a person get saved and not have a transformed life? Now notice in 6.1, Paul did not ask, will we continue to sin? He said, will we continue in sin? And there's a stark contrast because 
Paul is not speaking to the fact that we may occasionally fall into sin. Every Christian will have times where we fall into sin. We'll have habits that we're trying to break. We'll have issues that we're trying to get past. We will be imperfect and we will be weak. He's talking about intentional, willful celebration of sin. And so the imagery he says here is the phrase continue in. The word continue is given as an idea of habitual persistence. You would use the Greek word continue in, the phrase, you would have used it when someone has made the idea that they were going to now have a place be their permanent resonance. They would use that phrase. And Paul is essentially saying, how can you make sin your permanent residence when he's given you a whole new home in him? My wife and I, we, uh, we were hanging out this week and, uh, you know, late night, just scrolling through Netflix. And we saw this show uh, called uh, Worst Roommate Ever. I don't know if you saw it. It was a very interesting show. And um, so we, you know, we, we, went, we went through that. We just binged right through it, you know? And you get towards the end, and they had this one of these roommates, and I won't spoil the whole thing for you, but one of the roommates was a squatter, amen? And he basically would go on Craigslist and apply, and then once he applied, he would, uh, well, I'm sorry, he would, he would come with all his stuff, but he would never fully finish out the application, and then basically the, the way that the squatter's rights worked, if you now make it your address and you start getting mail there, it now functionally is your permanent address. All the while, the roommate's there saying, you've not paid any rent, you've not filled out the application, you shouldn't be here. But the person has decided to make it their permanent residence. And what Paul is saying is, how can you squat in sin? When he's given you a whole new residence in him. How can you enjoy it if you know that Christ is so much better? And in the same way the squatter hears the echoes of the people in the home saying, why are you still here? Paul is saying that. Why are you still there? How could you still be there? First John 3, 9 says, no one born of God makes, watch this, a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot, watch this, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What Paul is, or rather uh, John in this text is getting at is, he, it's not that we won't sin again. He's saying a practice of sinning. But notice the exchange he says. He does not say we will not make sin a practice because we are so strong. He says God's seed abides in him. So in reality, it is not just that we've moved out of this place of sin. It's that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ moved in. And he's now moved into our lives. Quite simply stated, it is hard to do the things we used to do because Jesus now is a resident in our soul. And we just can't see these things the same way. We can't respond the same way. 
Not when Jesus takes up residence in our soul. You know, um, I remember when I was a kid and I'd be there with my parents. And maybe you had this experience, right? When you were a kid, you'd be watching a show. It's going great. And then like a completely inappropriate scene comes on. Do you remember these awkward moments? So like the scene comes on and you feel it coming. And like all of a sudden the guy's like, well, why don't we go to the room? And the girl's like, sure. And you're like, oh my gosh. And you're sitting there with your parents, right? And you're like, does anybody want popcorn or anything? Like I, I'll just, I'll get out the way. Oh my gosh. And, and some of you know good and well that if your parents weren't there, you would probably watch it. But just having them there made things super awkward. It's, it's not that you became more moral. It's just someone was with you now. You can't make it a practice because God's seed is in them. The imagery is you just can't be the same. His presence abides in us. It transforms us and changes us. So, so Paul is questioning how could this be? Look in verse 2. He says, after asking that question, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He asks the question and answer. And when you look at how he renders this in the Greek text, the exclamation mark is real. It would be as if Paul was, you said something to Paul the apostle and he responded in all caps in a text message. He's screaming loud, no, may it never be. He's getting at the idea, you have missed the point. You've missed the mark. That's not what we're trying to communicate in those first five chapters. That's not how grace is intended to be used. So he expands on this idea of how can we who died to sin still live in it? This phrase, died to sin. In the next verse, he says, Do you not know? He's going to unpack this idea. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul then uses the symbol of baptism to be the key mark in understanding the process of justification and sanctification. In other words, he shows how we die to sin and we live to Christ. And he says, symbolically, that's what was happening when you gave your life to Christ. You were giving an outward expression of an inward faith. No, baptism does not save you. No symbol can save you. The water does not save you. But the symbol of baptism is an indication, an imagery of your life being changed and transformed. There was a burial. That burial marked a death. There was a resurrection. That resurrection marked a new life. But this also should mark a new righteous disposition, a new desire, a new heart, a new hunger to glorify him. The whole idea of baptism is that we become new. Sometimes there are words that we've gotten comfortable with that we may not know the intentionality of. 
when the writer of the New Testament or writers in the New Testament use the word baptizo, they are using a very significant word in Koine Greek to describe transformation. Baptizo is a word you could use, and then there's a word bapto. Bapto would mean to dip. Baptizo would mean to dip, but then come up new. And the word baptizo is being used here. In fact, we understand the differences of bapto and baptizo when a gentleman named Philip Nicander, who was a philosopher, wrote one day how to make pickles. He said to make a pickle, and he wrote this in Koine Greek, he says to make a pickle, you take a cucumber and you bapto it in water. He says, but then you take that cucumber and you baptizo it in vinegar. And when it goes down a cucumber, it comes up a pickle. He says, now that shows the imagery of transformation. And then when he says you've been baptizoed, the idea is we are imagining a world in which you went down one way and you came up another. And this is why Paul says all things have become new that we are transformed by grace. These pictures of baptism that we see in our church, and we have baptism coming up in our church, these pictures of baptism aren't people who got saved by the water. They're saying that one day something became real to me, and the words became real to me, and I'm just showing the world that Christ is real to me. And now I want to show the world I'm changed. I want to show the world that Christ is in my life. And this picture of baptism is acknowledging I'm forever changed. I'm forever changed. No, no, no. I'm not saying I don't sin anymore. I'm saying I'm in love with someone who's changing me and growing me just as you would a wedding. You'd make it public because of your affection and your love. One day, baptism and this idea of salvation being a means of transformation was explained to me quite simply in this, that we are free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, meaning it doesn't have dominion over us. It doesn't have the upper hand on us anymore, but we still fight the presence of sin. With that, we now realize that we should now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have an energy, a power to be able to fight against the sin that so easily entangles us. Paul would say in verse 4 of chapter 6, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That whenever you've been baptized, some of you were baptized when you were younger, but that baptism in your youth was an indication of your desire to maybe follow Jesus. But maybe after that baptism, you did not walk in newness of life. Maybe you walked in old patterns. Maybe there were old behaviors that still marked you more than Jesus. We all will fight against sin. But the reality is, because we live in a Christianized culture, sometimes people get baptized as a symbol of following their family, but not following Jesus. 
maybe even following the church, but not following Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, is that no one can force you into a changed life. We are loved into a changed life, into a transformed life. And that newness of life that Paul talks about here is he's imagining just as Jesus rose from the dead, he was resurrected. He said in the same way, we have this new life. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 9 that Jesus was seen by more than 500 people. Now, wouldn't it be wild if Jesus got resurrected and then hid? Wouldn't it be wild if Jesus got resurrected and was like, I don't want nobody to see this whole new body I got. You know what I'm saying? Trying to just keep it for heaven. Jesus says, or Paul says, he was seen by more than 500 completely new. In other words, Jesus put himself in a position to be seen, his new body to be observed, and that new life to be recognized. That would mean for us, when he says newness of life, he's not just saying we became a new person. He's saying we've been transformed, and then we want to make that transformation evident to the world. One thing that is very clear that the Christian life is personal, but it's not private. He saves us to put us on display, just as that new life was put on display. In resurrection power, our new lives are meant to be on display. As I said about your posting online, listen, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 45. I don't know nothing about social media. Do you know what I do know? I know we watch each other. I know that liking something isn't an indication of watching something. And I know that we're voyeurs in this culture. And people are watching you every day. And people are watching your lives, they're watching your timeline. And what Jesus did was he took his entire body and he positioned it where people would see him. And so we want to take all that we do, our jobs, our words, and we want to glorify God, our timelines. We want to glorify our God with them. That's what new life would indicate. Paul says in verse 5 and 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we too would no longer be enslaved to sin. When you hear that last part, be enslaved to sin, you immediately think, oh man, my my shackles are set free and I no longer will have any habitual sins. I won't have any problems with sin. And anybody that's been living the Christian life knows that is not true that you will struggle with sin, that you will fight against sin, that sin will still be a problem that you have to deal with. That is not what he is saying. But what he says here is you've been united. They, they would use that same word to talk about a branch that you would engraft into another tree, that you were bonded together, united with someone else. You are united with Christ. And he says, we know that our old self was crucified. And the word old there, that word, they intentionally used a word that did not mean old in terms of time. The word old there 
means old, like worn out and useless. See, you've got stuff in your closet that's old, but it's vintage now. Praise God. It's, you know, this is my 90s look, you know what I'm saying? It's old, but it's still useful. He doesn't mean old and vintage. He means old and useless. I can't wear these shoes anymore. I can't wear this jacket anymore. I can't walk in these pants anymore. They're useless to me anymore. And I've got to throw them out as an indication. I've got to get this away from me as an indication. It's just taking space up in my life. And so I remove it because it's useless. And when he says our old life is one we just don't want to go back to. And we have been, we've crucified it. It's been nailed to a cross. And so when Jesus says to Telestai, when he says it is finished, he pays for that old way of thinking and that old way of living where we did whatever we wanted to do and we lived however we wanted to live and we put it on the scrap heap and we couldn't dare go back. What I want to indicate to you is if you've been walking with Jesus and your life and you've never had a mile marker to clearly indicate you're in a new state, then baptism is a good option for you. Because when we drive, sometimes you can be driving for a while and you don't know where you are, and all of a sudden, it'll say, New Jersey, welcome. You're in a whole new state now. And when you see it, it's an indication. I'm in a different place. I want to encourage you, March 27th, we have baptisms coming up. And I'm not encouraging you to get dipped in the water. I'm encouraging you to tell the world you love Jesus and that you want to walk in new life and that you want people to see it. Paul here, he lastly says um, that it was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be slaves. Slaves have masters. And Paul's going to get into this more, but the reality is that we have a new master. How do you know something has mastery over you? You can't say no. And our new master, Jesus, he now becomes the leader of our life. We can't say no. We follow him in all of our ways, in all of our days, in our entire life. Jesus tells us this. And Paul, I want to go back to 1 John 3, 9. Rather, John, when he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He says he can't keep on sinning because... He's been born of God. Nicodemus would come to Jesus and he would clearly indicate how can a man go back to his mother's womb? Because Jesus had said, you must be born again. Start off a whole new life. 
this idea of residency, of the seed abiding in him. That's indication and imagery, starting again, a whole new life, someone living with you. My wife and I, we, um, I don't know, man. When we watch TV now, I think we just watch Netflix because that's, I don't know, everything's on there and everything's not on there either, praise God. But we're just kind of always on there. And we see all these love shows and relationship shows and they have all these like gossipy vibes to them. And um, Rasul and I were talking about another show uh, where they just like you meet them and then you married you know, all of a sudden, you know, I was like, wow, this is dramatic. This is very, this is very dramatic. You know, and, 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 I, and I promise you, the minute they show it, I'm like, this is stupid. This is dumb. Ten minutes, I'm like, no, she didn't. But it just catches you up. Because there's something about relationships that just draws us in. Something about people getting married that draws us in. And, and what we really get caught up in is how people respond to one another. But one of the things that Paul is saying here is kind of like watching a show. Ladies, imagine the perfect man. Height like you want it. Finances like you want it. Complexion like you want it. Popping, just... Mm. the man asks to marry you. You say yes. You want a lavish wedding? He says, no problem. I'll pay for it. You say, I want the biggest cake. He says, I'll buy it. Pay for it. You say, I want all my family there. I'll fly them in. And you sitting there with your popcorn. Girl, I can't believe that. Wedding is beautiful. Everyone's there. Y'all leave down the aisle. Everyone's clapping. Other ladies there say, I can't wait for a man like that. Oh my gosh. Everyone's celebrating. Everyone's happy. But then you hear, wait a minute, there's a problem. I heard she married him but she never moved in with him. What? A good man like that? But here's the thing, girl. Listen. She still asked that he would pay for all of her bills. Oh, wow. She must only want him for the money because she never really wanted to be with him. And you'd have your popcorn out and you'd be amazed by that story because you know if there's real affection, you'd be together. You'd live together. You'd love one another. Paul says, how can you still be in sin when Jesus offers you relationship? In fact, they call us the bride of Christ. There's no way we could not live with him. There's no way we could not be with him. And so just like those love shows are dramatic, the gospel is dramatic. 
and then it calls us into relationship. And we could not imagine not being with him. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Oh, today, 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 today is a day of salvation. We ask that today, that if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never had a moment where you've said, I want to follow Jesus all the days of my life, if you've never had that moment, we ask that you just slip up your hand. And if you slip up your hand, we'll see it. Just lift up your hand today. If today is the day that you've never, you've never given your life to Christ, then we ask that today would be the day that you would make it known that you want to follow Jesus. And if that not be you, then there might be someone else that today, today is the day that you heard something in the message that reminded you that you've gotten off the beaten path with Jesus. You've stopped following and you want to recommit your life to Christ and begin to follow. If that's you, just slip up your hand. Just lift up your hand today. If that's you and you want to begin to follow even though you've not been following. You want to begin to chase after him. Amen. Well, if we are all here knowing and loving Christ, then I pray that you would be overtly Christian amongst your friends, amen? That you would tell the world that God is good and that you not only know Jesus and go to church, but that you've been saved and transformed, amen? And you would tell the world, Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask even now that you would commission us to go out and tell the world, tell a dying world that Jesus is real. We ask that your blood, that it would not be something that we used way back then, but we know that the blood still works, that your power is still alive, and that we want to be set free from our sins. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to live a life we could not live on our own, and that the Spirit of the living God would just flow through this place, and that we would reach people where they are. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.